Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. Tom Kane, this is the voice of Yoda on Star Wars. And the Neverland podcast you are listening to. Yes. Another world. Another time. In the age of wonder. There was once a dream. You could only whisper it. Anything more than a whisper. And it would vanish. A battle between good and evil. You don't know the power of the dark side. Where shall I find a new adversary so close to my own level? Try the local sewer. You know of the rebellion against the Empire? The Avengers. Earth's mightiest heroes. Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. One of these days, I'm going to have a stick of my own. I'm Groot. Welcome to the Neverland Podcast. The podcast for lovers of Disney, Pixar, Marvel, and Star Wars. I'm glad you're here to tell us these things. Please welcome your host, Jeremy. I thought he'd be taller. Yeah, I can fly. All it takes is faith and trust. Well, if it isn't the Star Spangled Man with a plan, what is your plan today? Up to Take your pixie out of your pockets, Neverlanders, and sprinkle some of that pixie dust around. Think up that happiest thought, and let's fly away to Neverland. And guess what? You're not alone. Of course, I'm not alone either, but really. But I am your host, Jeremy the Spider Pan. I'm a head last play around here, and we have our head pixie here. Hello, Wendy Nerd. We call you Heather. Or, Hi, yes. Well, yeah, Heather, but we call you the Wendy Nerd. <laughs> Heather's my real name. Wendy Nerd is my yeah. moniker for here, I guess. Yeah, and if you hear noise in the background, that is because the adult cat has decided to wander in the studio because if we leave her outside, when Heather comes in, both of us in here, she can't handle that. So if you hear noise in the background, that's the adult cat, which uh, actually leads to a story of the adventure we're having now, uh, which we might as well tell everybody because I may have to deal with it here in the studio. Who knows? I don't yeah. know. It's getting complicated, but all right, this is your fault, so you better start. My fault? <laughs> you found her. Okay, so um, on Memorial Day weekend, I'm driving back from my parents' house, and I happen to see along the side of the road a teeny tiny little kitten, and um, I had to pull over like immediately because I knew it was going to get squished if it stays you know, wandering on the side of the road. So Yeah, these were like country road, back roads, so it wasn't out like on a major thoroughfare necessarily, yeah. but still... Well, yeah. it's still, the, that particular road was a major road going through uh, for this particular place. So, anyway, um, yeah, it could have been squished like any moment. So I ran back and I grabbed the kitten and, um, and since it was Memorial Day, there really wasn't anywhere to take her for as far as a shelter. 
So we took her to an emergency hospital um, because it was obvious when I picked her up that she needed some uh, medical care. Yeah, and um, you called me because she wouldn't, you know, she was like climbing all over you and you, she wasn't going to let you drive or yes, something. Yes, even though I, I had a box to put her in and, and had a little blanket, made a little bed for her, she did not want to stay in the box. She wanted to climb all over my car. So I couldn't drive. And, yeah, so you called me, and so I was on my way to go do something, and I had to turn around and come back, and then you figured out a way to and you could put a lid on the box. So yeah, for, fortunately, putting a lid on the box kind of quieted her down, so yeah. uh, we could, I could get her, you know, we could get her to the emergency room, and there was a lot of, what do we do with the cat yeah, before we, already we got have, to the point? We have the adult cat, which is wandering around the room right now. And trying to introduce two cats is very, very complicated. Are you drinking my drink? Yeah, I'm sorry. I That's thought it my was drink. mine. I'm going to take a drink of my drink now. So it's not like, you know, we haven't drank after each other before. Yeah, I'm, and, and you know, we shouldn't be afraid of anybody else's spit by now. Yeah. So it's 16 years, which, by the way, uh, so that weekend, we, we, we hit 16 years of marriage. Mm -hmm. I turned 42 on Sunday. Oh, yo, foggy. Yeah, and boy, my body feels it. Uh, so, but I was worried about trying to introduce this, and I even, there was a stray cat a couple weeks ago that had showed up on our doorstep that decided it really liked me and tried to follow me into the apartment to where our cat came up and hissed at it. So I was like, okay, well, our cat doesn't like other cats. This is going to be bad. But then I meet this little kitten, and she just gives you this little meow. Help me! She, she is so cute. She will capture your heart like right away. And so our, we our end up in an emergency cat, room for for cats. <laughs> our older cat, um, when we adopted her, had a, a history of like not being compatible with other cats. This yeah. is why she ended up at the uh, the rescue for the second time. Yeah, she, well, I so, think it was the third time. And they said that you know she. I don't she know. She hadn't fit in at some couple homes, so our, our current cat, Alora, who's an adult, she's about how old now is she about? She's going to be seven. She uh, is seven, I thought she was at officially least six. a senior cat. So, so. Um, anyway, so anyway, we, we brought her to the, um, the but she's very happy with us. Emergency you know, vet. Yeah. yeah, Alora is happy. We don't want to upset that. Anyway, so uh, the kitten had uh, conjunctivitis, which is like cat pink eye basically yeah and then uh had a respiratory uh some respiratory issues which, which was from cat herpes yeah uh which apparently 85 percent of cats have especially if they're strays so we're pretty sure our adult cat has already had it because she was yeah. a, a, a rescued stray yeah she she was like i guess she was rescued because she had kittens on somebody's porch that was was the story yeah. that we uh were told when we got her anyway and we were hoping though because she's had kittens that she's gonna look at this kitten and be like oh look it's a kitten that didn't happen well there's a difference between your kitten and this other and other kittens and, yeah. and all the time growing up like we had kittens and things like that we only, only once do i ever remember um another cat caring for a, a cat's kittens like the mothers helped each other out um usually they took care of their own kittens and yeah. had nothing to do with each other so um anyway so we have been i have been not we i have been uh, trying to get pills and eye drops and feeding and cleaning up poop all week long. Um, took her to school. <laughs> yeah, we've I, had to keep her locked in the bathroom because we we got to keep the cats separate for mm -hmm. a slow introduction. Uh, and health eventually, reasons. or health, health reasons. reasons. Plus, you need to get the scent of one cat and share it with the other. So we need to get stuff. You know, like the kitten has pretty much been climbing on us, and she is a, a moment is wasted if she's not being held close to your she's chest. She's got to be snuggled. Like she's got to be snuggled the all the time. So I have plenty of shirts with kitten scent. Now, that'll mix with mine, which apparently if we have the adult cat smell that enough, that will slowly kind of help 
work things well, in there. And we also have, because uh, we, when we took her to the vet for her kind of one week, I guess it was actually five days, kind of check up to make sure that the eye infection was clearing up properly. Um, that uh, cage is sitting in the living room, so the cat sniffed that. I got a little tub that I had to give the kitten a bath because um, she's, I guess, would be five weeks Five weeks old now. Yeah, five weeks old. But has, so she wasn't even supposed to leave her mother yet. No. Uh, she doesn't... So you're mommy now. This cat totally is taking you yeah, as a mommy. Yeah, I, I am. I think there is a difference when I walk in the room versus somebody else. Now, she likes other people, um, and I, she hasn't rejected anybody or been scared of anybody. Um, but I think there is a difference when I get there. Anyway, so I had to give her a bath because she's got a little diarrhea. We're hoping the dewormer will clear that up. And then maybe she will get to the litter box more often. I'm hoping because I'm getting tired of cleaning up kitty poop. She knows yeah. where the litter box is, but she doesn't always use it. Well, I think, you know, because she's sick, you know, so poor kitten. Is, she's just sick. But this is, here's, here's the funny part of this. So this kitten's been living in, uh, our bathroom is divided to where there's the sinks. There's two sinks and then another door that goes into where the toilet and the shower and the bathtub is. So I get up at three o'clock in the morning because I have to I have to be at the radio station about forty five minutes away by five uh, before five really because I have to start programming the music and putting some ads in for the five o'clock hour. So I get at like three o'clock in the morning. I got to go in and I got to use the bathroom. I got to you know try to get a shower. And anytime you go in there, the kitten will wake up. Even yep. though you're trying to keep her asleep. And if you're there, then you need to be paying attention to her as her perspective. And so she'll follow you around there. And she's gotten, the healthier she gets, the faster she gets. And she'll come loping around along, doop de doop de doop de doop kind of funny. And meow! And uh, if you're standing by the sink, she'll start climbing your leg. Uh, yep. If you're sitting on the toilet and you didn't clate that door closed, she'll, you, she will not settle down until you pick her up. And you're holding her while you're trying to poop. You know? <laughs> or whatever else. <laughs> you know? So you have to try to get in there and close that door before she gets in there. Uh, but it's just so funny watching her loop to doop to doop to doop to doop because she's fast at it, but she looks funny r trying to run. Well, she's not gone strong enough yet to walk on her toes like a proper cat, so she's well, kind of she's getting there. She's kind of rabbiting it a little bit, so not fully flat foot, but it's just kind of at an angle, so she looks a little awkward when she runs. But yeah, she's got this funny hop gallop kind of thing going on. Yep. It's pretty um, funny, but yeah. So now I almost dread like, oh man, I gotta go to the bathroom. I was gonna wake the kitty up, and I'm gonna have to end up hanging out in the bathroom with the kitten for a little while, which we don't mind hanging out with the kitten. But it's like we're in the bathroom, you know? yeah. Uh, although we have tried to bring her out and sit with her on the couch now. Uh, although the adult cat is still not entirely happy. The the thing is, is the adult cat Allura is aware that there is a kitten in the place. Oh, yeah, she knows. She, first day, she kind of came and guarded the door a little bit, but now she just, when we go in and out of the bathroom, Laura will get up in her tree and pout. She just has that kitty look of pouting like, you're in there with another cat. I don't like this other cat. Oh, but it is funny with the, when I got into the toilet, whenever I get in there, the toilet and I get the door closed, I have little kitten paws that'll come underneath the door. <laughs> yeah. Well, another time she'll lean, I swear, she leaned down to meow underneath the crack in the door because you could hear a muffled meow meow, then all of a sudden it got really loud. So she had to have bent down, put her mouth to that crack and meowed to the crack. Yeah. And she'll go a prolonged, almost a howl in there. Just meow. She's got these multiple meows, although the pan uh, the panicky meow of, like, insecurity, I think, has been pretty much gone. She's just got this little beggy meow now. Yeah. So I think she feels she feels like she's safe, which is good because I, you know, I don't know what she went through before she got was out on the road. We don't know if she was dumped or if she was abandoned. 
I I don't know. She wasn't in a bad shape. Like she didn't have lots of fleas. I think I did find a couple of ticks on her. But she was actually, as far as like um, signs of her being out in the wild and like with ticks and fleas and everything coming on her, uh, she was in pretty good shape in that aspect. So she hadn't been out there for very long, which makes me think she was maybe dumped. Yeah, somebody abandoned um, a four-week-old kitten out there. Yeah. Um, and she's, so, a, she's a calico. She's cute, pretty little yeah. kitty. And her thing. eyes are a lot better. I've been putting photos up on my Instagram. You know what? I should memorize what my Instagram is so I can share it. Mm. Uh, I will try to get a link up in the show notes or up on our... We have a Facebook page and also a Facebook group. Uh, I'm, I'll try to maybe share some of the photos there, but also onto our, um, I've been posting stuff up to Instagram. Uh, you've got a bunch of photos you've taken that I haven't posted up because you haven't sent them to me yet or anything. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so this is going to be an ongoing kind of saga for us. Uh, so it's, we're going to wind up being a two cat household unless we cannot get the uh, adult cat to accept the kitten. Although it seems like the adult cat just is avoiding. She's not yeah. swatty with the kitten. So I, I have some hope that this could work because what I was worried about is our cat beating up the kitten or something. Yeah, I, 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 most cats don't do that. Like, she may swat her, like, swat, 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 get away. Um, but there usually there's not, like, a death confrontation. Yeah, it's, I, that's what I was worried about. I don't know um, what Allura's capable of, you know. No, I, but I don't want Allura to go backwards because it's taken her a long time to progress forward to being uh, as comfortable with us because she's a very standoffish cat and is very has some peculiarities as far as like what she when she likes to be petted how does she like to be petted you know she's well, that's she, kind of a cat thing anyway. uh, she's quirkier than any cat i've ever owned and uh <laughs> anyway so i don't want her to go backwards and to be so like aloof and you know like feel like she's being abandoned because we yeah, have a kitten. she's rubbing her scent all over this room here this was going to be my neutral space in here as best as i could try to try to have the two cats meet more in here. Because it says a neutral space would be good. But really, there's not much neutral space in this little apartment. No. So this is going to be interesting. But uh, no. to make another kind of funny story, about the same time that, that uh, we end up with this kitten, uh, there's this guy, Chris, at, uh, that I work with. He's kind of the, the, the guy over my head at uh, the radio station. He, every Friday, brings in this lovable little pit bull named Layla that she just loves everybody. I See, if you raise a pit bull, right, they're lovable little fun dogs. And they love to play. There's there a lot of energy, so you got to be able to play with them. And it, she thinks anytime we're not playing with her, it's just the most depressing time. You can just she'll just lay there, just like nobody's playing with me. Everybody's busy working. What else and, do you have to do but play with me? And uh, but I had mentioned that I thought you know because Heather's been taking the kitten with her to work at school and passing around the students, so that way they're just somebody's holding the kitten at all times. And I had thought it's like you know about bringing the kitten with me to work one day, like on Friday, because. Of, you know, the dog always is there on Friday. I thought, well, maybe I'll bring the kitten along. And But I, I talked to Chris and said, I don't know if Layla would play with the kitten or eat the kitten. And he looks at me and says, you know what? Layla actually has adopted a kitten that was a stray mm. just this, over the weekend. So I know that this, this kitten just had wandered into the garage or whatever. And Layla, the, the pit bull, started playing. And mm. they're playing hide and seek apparently around there where the kitten will go and hide. And then pop out at the dog. And the dog just thinks it's fun. And, just, and he tried to take his dog somewhere. And the dog goes to the back of his car and is crying out the window because they left the kitten behind. <laughs> so, so now he has a kitten because the dog adopted a kitten. <laughs> that reminds me of the Looney Tunes with the, yes. the bulldog and the little kitten. Yes, it's exactly like that. So so we've had some kitten hijinks around here. And uh-huh. Eric is not here once again this week because I believe he has completed moving. He was supposed to be out by Yay. the end of May. But he is off helping Adrian Rop at uh, the DenverCon. 
So if you happen to be in the Colorado area, I hope you were there and you saw their booth and you got some artwork from Adrian Ropp. Uh, but so Eric will hopefully maybe be back next week and we'll be back, back to some sort of normalcy. Um, so that's where that is. But until then, Heather is here today. Uh, but we got to talk about the elephant in the room real fast for uh, what's going on in the, the Disney verse. Oh, but one other thing I want to throw in. This is kind of interesting. So DJ Manco, who's one of our Lost Boys, mm-hmm. sent a video to me. I know him as Court. Uh, we don't, I usually don't use people's last names, but yes, his first name is Court, like a courtroom. That's kind of cool. I met him at the Radio Talent Systems thing over the summer. Uh, he mm-hmm. actually was doing a show at Northwest Missouri State University. Uh, I can't remember what it was called, but he was doing a show there. I think he's graduated now, and so I don't know what he's up to now. But he sent me a video from a, there's a, a YouTube channel called Defunct Land, and they'll, he goes the, the the people who run Defunct Land they do nice little documentary videos about old Disney attractions that aren't there or old theme parks, things like that. But he actually sent me a video. I did not know this, but Ray Kroc, and the look on your face says everything. Who's Ray Kroc? There is actually a movie about Ray Kroc with Michael Keaton. I forgot what it's called. It's called The Founder, I think. I haven't watched it yet. Ray Kroc is the guy who bought the McDonald's franchise from the McDonald's Brothers and turned it into the McDonald's fast food franchise that we know. Ray Kroc, back during the World War Two, I guess it would be, yeah, it would have been, no, World War One, World War One, sorry, World War One was just like Walt Disney, too young to do anything, but wanted to do something, faked his age, and became an ambulance driver for the Red Cross. And actually, Ray Kroc and Walt Disney met at uh, when they were training to be ambulance drivers in World War One. Hmm. So that's interesting. But uh, this video actually follows. So I didn't know that, but Ray Kroc, when he. Uh, he met the McDonald's brothers, and they were doing this idea of doing some quick-service hamburgers, and Ray Kroc is the one who said, this could be a bigger franchise than just your little hamburger stand. And so he's the one that kind of made it into a full thing, and eventually he bought the whole thing from the brothers. But he knew he needed to do something to kind of advertise and make this idea bigger, and so he actually worked with Walt Disney, you know, or he, he contacted Walt Disney like, hey, remember me? You know, we were ambulance drivers. Uh, and wanted to get something going on with Disneyland when Disneyland was getting their promotion stuff in order to get, like, fast food things rolling. And so they kind of worked together. But that was, like, the beginning of where we'd have partnerships where you had Disney toys and Happy Meals. And the contract's kind of been on and off through different things. Currently, we've got a contract where there are Disney and, of course, Marvel and Star Wars things popping up at McDonald's. But they've previously, you know, they've been uh, over Burger King and stuff like that. There's, so there's been all kinds of different things, but I found that to be very, very interesting. Uh, so if you go to Defunct Land, go look for that video. It's very interesting. Uh, I've also found he did a video about the Orient Express here at Worlds of Fun. And there are actually some people who were uh, ride designers at Disneyland who eventually came and did some work uh, at Worlds of Fun. That's but unfortunately, good. Cedar Fair has run that park into the ground because it's not a priority to them. Uh, you, they'd rather put all their money competing directly with Disney. Somebody please sell Worlds of Fun to Disney and let them build a decent park because Walt wanted to build a park in Missouri anyway. Why not here? Well, there's so many connections with Kansas City and, and Walt Disney. It's and it's in the middle of the you know middle of the country. You could uh, have you know you've got your East Coast Park, you've got your West Coast Park. What about the you know the Midwest? Yeah, the Midwest. So people around the middle of the country could maybe afford to visit more yeah. often. But the elephant in the room... This will be a day long remembered. It has seen the end of Kenobi and will soon see the end of the rebellion. Plug in. You should be able to interpret the entire Imperial Network. Welcome, young Skywalker. I have been expecting you. 
Star Wars news. Galaxy's Edge opened on the 31st, and there was a big gala event. You got to see some of the video. Yeah, some of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they had like, like a press event. Uh, Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford and Bob Iger was there, and George Lucas came out, and uh, they had even some fun with uh, firing up the, the engines on the Millennium Falcon. We had Chewie on board. Uh, a lot of different fun stuff. I'm a mean, big event to open up Galaxy's Edge. But here are the things that I've picked up from watching some videos and reading some reviews. I did, the first thing I saw was a review from Dusty Sage of, uh, dang it. Yep, I, I, uh, I think it's Mice Chat. Yeah, Mice Chat. Uh, this, this was the only concerns I've seen so far on the Smuggler's Run is, you know, it's very, very cool. I've gotten to see the queue line you go through and you kind of wind back around and uh, there's not really any source music in the area. No John Williams music because it's supposed to be like you're really in there. So they're they're very light on putting those uh, John Williams motifs into the area, from what I'm learning. Uh, but you go you go through this whole walkway. It's very realistic. Hondo is there to give you instructions. The animatronic is fantastic. But he was mentioning when you get onto the Millennium Falcon, and I don't know how many chambers they have set up, but you get to kind of mill around in the main area where the like the uh, the game board is and stuff like that. And you have like a color-coded card that says what your position is going to be. They would, the cast members would just come and call your color out, and you might not necessarily hear them very well. He was thinking they maybe need to have some speakers or something where they could call, hey, who this, your, what crew is up. Uh, other things that he noted that would be our problematic is the controls. He was piloting first, and he said the controls were very, very touchy. And from other videos I've seen, people are having a hard time piloting. Uh, and they're crashing into stuff, but he had people, he, there were strangers in there on his crew that were yelling at him because he was crashing into stuff, and he found that very uncomfortable. Uh, and also, and of course, when you get off the ride, uh, you have you have cast members as characters saying, well, hey, you owe us money, you did very badly, you crashed the Millennium Falcon, that kind of thing. Uh, and he, did, he didn't like that part of the experience, and then he also mentions he got back on a later time and he went in as a gunner. Now... You would think, based upon the films, a gunner is going to go up and down the ladders to where these turrets are at on the ship. But no, you're in this mid-position, and you have a button that lights up, and you just press the button whenever it says to you. But if you're trying to watch out the main viewport to watch what's happening, your body is twisted, and Dusty was saying that that was very uncomfortable to sit like that, trying to hit his button, but also trying to watch what's going on. Uh, So there is that. I have seen that criticism of the ride, but it looks like some other videos, people are still having a lot of fun. Uh, the other thing I saw, I got to see some footage in Oga's Cantina, which uh, David Collins is the voice of Oga. I found that out. So many of you will know him from uh, Rebel Force Radio. He now has the soundtrack show, which I love that show. Uh, talking about movie soundtracks. He does a lot of work with LucasArts and stuff like that, music composer. But uh, So he's doing that. But also, Rex is back as the DJ, and it's very fun. I've got to see some footage of him, and he'll play some familiar Cantina songs. But he's got kind of one arm up in the air, and he's kind of bopping up and down. So mm-hmm. it's goofy. And it is still Paul Rubens as nice. DJ Rex. Good. So he's still in there. Uh, but then I also got to see, you know, it, the merchandise is very expensive. I've heard something that you could get something to cost you a few thousand dollars, and it's probably costumes. Wow. The two things I've really gotten to look in on, and I think what you're paying for is not so much the merchandise, but the experience you have. For $100, and I, I was watching an LA, uh, LA Times, I think one of their reporters go through, and with tax, it was like 107 and some change. To or, or no, was that yeah, that was the droid experience, and the droid experience you get to go through, pick what type of droid you want to make. They give you some blueprints to make sure you grab every part. There's a conveyor bar, belt that goes by, and you pick your parts of whatever colors that you want, 
and then you go to another station and you actually have some power tools there because you have to assemble the droid. And they kind of help you out. And they have this almost ceremonic thing where they you put your droid in a thing and it powers it up. And the head will turn and beep, 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 beep at you and stuff. And then you get your remote that controls it, and then they'll box it up for you. So it's $100, which might be more than the droids. That's pretty close to like a remote control thing, depending upon what all it do. Yeah, like but a, you're a, paying for that experience yeah. to go in there and to have like a droid building in a workshop. So that's what, it's like a Build-A-Bear, but you're building a droid. Uh, so you're paying $100 mainly for that experience, and then you get a fun droid toy. I, I kind of want one. I must say, they look like a lot of fun. Mm. So, But then the other one, the, what would get you, it's a $200 lightsaber. But it's the experience you're paying for. The lightsabers are neat, but the experience you have, I watched some video, and this is very, very similar, but uh, this is also a bit of criticism. Uh, Universal, when I've seen video, you go in, you have a wand ceremony. You have, you know, at Ollivander's, where one, usually they'll get a kid, gets to go and go through, oh, nope, not quite that one. Well, wave this one, poof, something else pops. You know, they, the whole Harry Potter experience with a wand. But only one person in a group will get to do that. But a wand, I think, is a lot less expensive. But they just do the experience, you know, and one person. Now, so one thing that's great about the lightsaber thing is everybody gets to have that experience. You're going into, a, like, a secret back room mm -hmm. of the shop. And they'll say, oh, well, do you have an appointment? Mm. With what's what's particular person I forgot it's like Savi or something it's a, a junk shop, but then you get this case and you got these different parts, and they go through the grade of how important it is for the selection of the kyber crystal that powers the lightsaber and the colors and the meaning of the colors that you That's choose yeah. this whole thing and then you choose your hilt types and your different pieces. And then uh, after you've assembled your lightsaber, however you want it to look, they have you insert it into a slot. And it doesn't have any sort of blade thing on it. But you put it in there, and you hear Frank Oz as Yoda. Nice. Who go in, whose voice, the, the, who the spirit of Yoda comes in. And the Yoda theme starts playing, and he's you know, telling you how must you must with the Force and all this stuff. You know, this neat little thing. And then while you've got your lightsaber in the slot, it's they, they, it gets the uh, blade part assembled. And... Uh, so because uh, your 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 spot where you put your lightsaber will light up, and you you would pull your lightsaber out and extend it. And how this is working is it's like the light itself on the inside of this tube will extend and retract with sound effects. So I don't know how sturdy these are. I don't know if you were part of Saber Guild if you'd want to use these. It's mainly it's just kind of this neat lightsaber that you kind of got to put together yourself. But you spent two hundred dollars on that experience to go. To this big, ah, yes, what will you do? The Force is your ally. You're that guy in the thing. Because mm -hmm. you can choose to make a red one because the red you know, people who choose red are after power. They crave power, you know. So, <laughs> welcome to the dark side. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. that sort of thing. Uh, I think so, there's some other colors that lean towards the dark side, too, like orange. I think orange is a, a dark side one. Well, I, I don't know. Well, they might have that on the Force Unleashed game, but mainly it's red. Oh, well. I know, but I I was looking at the colors at one point in time, and it was there's well, some neutral ones where like they're not the only ones available know, right now. I don't know what all they have at is. Galaxy's Edge. You can do blue, green, violet. I thought it'd be purple, but they're yeah, calling it violet, violet or red. Okay, well, so that's all right. Uh, but that is you know you're you're it's expensive, but you're really paying for a one of a kind experience. And for a Star Wars fan, that would be fun uh, for the experience, but. Holy cow! Two hundred dollars for your lightsaber. That's if you look, if you think about it, of just buying it, then it's going to be a lot. But if you're thinking about the experience you're having with crafting it and this little, you know, Jedi ceremony you get to attend to, that would make it worth it. 
I mean, there are some there are some lightsabers you can purchase that's two hundred dollars. I mean, like yeah, you, you can, can buy drop, you can drop two hundred dollars on can. a lightsaber. You can easy, yeah. So, but so if you're thinking about the price of it, just think about you're having an experience, uh, and that would be uh, totally worth it. Mama, now the gator got in the house. Now the gator, give me that sugar. Come here, get him, mama. Get that gator. The Neverland Trailer Park. Get a chance to walk her. Oh, bad dragon. Back to your lair. Come, dear brother. Our destiny awaits. Okay, I'm coming. I'm coming. I see you've brought sustenance for our adventure. No, it's garbage for the trash can, and you left the lid off. Oh, shoot. Get out of here. Shoot. Get out. Ugh. Unicorns. We're going on a grand and glorious quest. It's not a quest. It's just a really fast and strange errand. It's totally a quest. So first thing in the trailer park, and somehow or another, I, I know I'd heard something of this, but I guess I wasn't paying attention and had no idea this was coming, but Pixar's next film after Toy Story 4, which, so this is either going to be coming over next summer, I guess, uh, but Onward. It was cute. <laughs> it was cute. I kind of like the little take on, you know, the magical world that kind of looks a lot like Hours? Yeah, where you know time has gone forward a little bit, and, and the mm. magical world has has modernized, eh, very Harry Potterish, I suppose. Mm. But everything magical has not stayed separate from the regular world, you know. But I didn't see any humans, so the humans probably don't exist. Everything is look like elves, trolls, some dwarves, un gnomes, and unicorns, mermaids, <laughs> dragons for pets. Yeah. <laughs> and I love the fact that there's a troll who's working the toll bridge, so it's a troll bridge. Mm. You know, just a lot of goofy, clever things. Even the lawn gnome who's just standing there and another gnome comes out of the house. Get back to work. Yeah. Quit standing around. Uh, so just silly stuff and the unicorns getting into the trash cans. Yeah. <laughs> like they're pests rather than like the noble unicorn. They're all dirty and you know, like yeah. raccoons. Mm -hmm. uh, so just silly fun. And plus, you know, Tom Holland, which I uh, give or take, whatever. And uh, he's okay as a Spider-Man, but whatever. But oh. Chris Pratt playing the brother, his older brother, who's off on a quest. Yeah. I'm sold. <laughs> yeah. That would make it just fun. So I'm looking forward to what more we learn about this film. And uh, I'll have to do a bit of investigating, see what, what details Pixar has released about this one. But it looks like it's going to be fun. But it's Pixar. I So far, there hasn't been a Pixar, Pixar film that I didn't like. Even if I don't like it as much as some of the other ones, I still like them all. 
Pixar just makes good movies to me. So, yep. She's kind of side oh, to side. I don't know. There's some that I, I don't really care to watch again just because they're a little, I don't know. Make you cry too much. Yeah, I mean it's like it's like up. I mean the first the first bit of it is like great, but then for the rest of it I'm kind of like, oh, okay. So I don't know. It's still a good movie. It's just the first ten minutes is better than the rest of the movie. Yes, but it the is. rest of the movie's still pretty good. Yeah. It's got some good stuff. I am Doug, and I like you already. Yeah. I mean, come on. There's good characters in that movie. Well, yes, there's. So, yes. It's still a pretty good movie. So, oh, but we got another another thing to talk about in the trailer park, but this one is not a movie. So I was already excited. I just a, a teaser. I just just needed to be like woohoo! Really, uh, Dark Crystal: Age of Resistance. I was already like, uh, it's more Dark Crystal. Dude. We've so, been waiting for Dark yes. Crystal for a long time. Yeah. Know. So now we get our peek at it, and mm-hmm. it's the perfect blend of a bit of CG and some of the modern film tricks mixed with classic puppeteering. Yeah. Ah! Yep. Um, yeah. It's it's good. Like I I like. I like to getting to look at some other Gelflings. Like, you know, in the first one, we only see the two, but you don't get to see the variety of what could be, like, Gelfling kind. This one, you kind of get a little more of a picture of, like, what the Gelflings were like. Yeah, because in the the film, you've got a Gelfling who's raised by the mystics, and he kind of behaves and dresses like one of the mystics. And you got the other one raised by the little podlings, Podlings. Mm -hmm. and she dresses and behaves like one of them. Now we get to see what the Gelfling civilization was like, and what they would wear as Gelflings and like their armor Mm -hmm. and their ways. So that's pretty exciting. 
And this looks like it, from what it looked like, the it's going to be beginning at the crystal being broken. Yeah, like the things that... Um, like darkness is just about to happen. Yeah. And the Skeksis are going to do something horrible. Which, uh, I, that gives me mixed feelings about it because... <laughs> A little depressing I, that you know that's not going to yes, end well. Yes, I, I know it's not going to end well because I know how the dark crystal begins. Um, but I kind of, I want to see... I want to see all of the magic of the land, like what it was before. So it's almost yeah. like, even though we know it's going to end kind of poorly, but it's almost like we get a picture of what the world can be after the Dark Crystal, yeah. you know, and, and um, Kira and I forget his name. Jen. Jen, yeah. you know, have well, so there are comic restored books it. Of that. You know, comic books well, I haven't that. read the comic books. I haven't gotten to read them all either. They tried to adapt that story that they were going to make a sequel at one point. Mm -hmm. and they've adapted that story into a comic book, which unfortunately I didn't get to read of. There were some follow-up comics I've got a couple of. Uh, but the comics, just seeing it drawn like that is not as good as the puppets. There's something about it coming to life. Yeah. And breathing and living, you know, as much as it can on on a screen. You yeah. Know? Oh, but we're just excited. <laughs> so that is coming very very soon on Netflix. And hooray! Jim Henson, I think, is going to be very would have been very proud uh, of what they've done. And at least that's from what I've seen. <laughs> there will be spectacle. There will be fantasy. There will be daring do and stuff like you would never see. Yeah, we're gonna be a movie starring everybody and me. Boy, I wish I were you people seeing this for the first time. Kermit, I got a great picture of the chicken. Oh, good. All right, I know I'm a little bit late on this one because the movie came out a week ago. But because it was my birthday and our anniversary and Memorial Day, I wanted to take a week off. So we got to hear from Mick Foley at Planet Comic Con, and I hope you all enjoyed that last week. But so now we're going to take a time to discuss the live-action version of Disney's Aladdin. And I did find a press kit on this one and uh, found some interesting facts about the making of the film. Principal photography on Aladdin took place on practical stages at Long Cross Studios and Arborfield Studios, both in the UK, as well as the Hashemite Kingdom of Southern Jordan. So, yes, filming on location. Nice. Yeah. The production filmed on the stunning desert vistas of Wadi Rum at Wadi Dissi in Jordan. I'm probably getting those wrong. Where Lawrence of Arabia was shot, which I've never nice. seen, but I know Good. it's a big deal. The Royal Film Commission provided invaluable support to the production during filming, including comprehensive production services, assistance in facilitating logistics with local authorities, securing film permits, and hiring of 150 locals to supplement the existing UK crew. Production designer Gemma Jackson, who won an Emmy Award for her production design work on Game of Thrones, was tasked with bringing Agrabah to life. She envisioned the city as a gateway to the Eastern world with a vibrant array of colors, cultures, and sounds. Her inspirations came primarily from Moroccan, Persian, and Turkish architecture and featured elements of Arab, Indian, and South Asian cultures. Since Agrabah is an Arab country on the Silk Road where cultural influences from other cultures in the regions could be found. Yeah, and I did see some of that influence because they were mm -hmm. coastal and you had like other dignitaries that would come in. That's that's makes sense. Uh, the art department, under the supervision of Gemma, Gemma Jackson, built the massive Agrabah set outdoors on a tarmac the size of two football fields at Longcross Studios in just 15 weeks. Set decoration for Agrabah included fabrics, textiles, and carvings similar to those found in Marrakesh, lots of colorful woods, metals, fruits, and vegetables, and a thousand-year-old olive tree. Oh, nice. The, yeah, the Agrabah courtyard, market stalls, narrow alleys, and cluttered rooftops were designed to accommodate the extent
extensive choreography and stunts featured in the musical numbers One Jump Ahead and Prince Ali. The Prince Ali musical sequence is the biggest production number in the film with 250 dancers and 200 extras. Costume designer Michael Wilkinson and his team created more than 200 costumes from scratch just for the extras. The 30-foot yellow flower camel on which Prince Ali arrives at the palace was made from 37,000 flower heads and took 15 model makers three weeks to build. And uh, previously, in another part of the press kit, it mentioned it took them like a week to shoot that sequence. I bet so. Wow. The director of photography, Alan Stewart, had seven cameras filming the lavish production number Prince Ali to capture all aspects of the parade. For the one jump ahead sequence, he attached a GoPro camera to Mina Massads, who played Aladdin, uh, attached it to his waist to capture footage from Aladdin's point of view as he runs and jumps through the narrow alleys and rooftops. The VFX team created 40 minutes of anim- animatics. animatics okay, and previs for the Prince Ali... Previs. Animatics and previs. That's okay. so, since you don't know, and I bet a lot of other people don't know. That's where they'll kind of, uh, and they'll do a lot now in computer. They will visualize what the scene's going to look like, and they'll animate the characters in a scene to kind of have a coordinate of what it's going to look based off the storyboard. There's actually some really fun behind the scenes of Return of the Jedi where they used some toys to when they were doing the animatics for the um, the chase there on the speeder bikes. There's some really fun footage uh, on some making stuff. But yeah, they'll they'll try to pre-visualize and shoot like, with miniatures, but now they'll do it on a computer so you get an idea of what you want it to look like before you actually start the main camera's rolling. So that's animatics and previs. But anyways, go ahead. But yeah, so uh, it took uh, 40 minutes of animatics and previs for the Prince Ali musical number to give filmmakers a better idea as to the extent of the choreography that would be taking place, just like you were saying. Yeah. Uh, Jasmine's bedroom in the palace reflects the intelligence and strength of her character. Set decorations include books, maps, and opulent tapestries. Opulent tapestries. Opul- opulent tapestries and pieces of art collected by the princess. Um, in the bed in Jasmine's room was doubled to in size to accommodate both the princess and her tiger Raja. The accompanying bedspread was hand embroidered in Pakistan in order in honor uh, to honor to honor sorry <laughs> Jasmine's late mother. Mother's Kingdom of uh, Sherabad. Sherabad, yeah. yeah which, which is based in South Asia. So I wonder if that's actually a real place. Maybe. It's, or maybe an ancient place. Yeah. The Cave of Wonders was created via a combination of practical sets and visual effects work. VFX. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cavernous interiors were built on sound stages at Long Cross Studios and included an enormous lion's head at the cave's entrance and artificial rock formations covered with jewels and miscellaneous treasures and voiced by Frank Welker. Woohoo! Uh, set decorator Tina Jones sourced jewel- jewels from across the regions as they were quite colorful, sparkling, and bright. Some were recast in rubber and placed on the floor of the cave so the cast and crew could walk comfortably. Almost every type of VFX work was utilized on Aladdin, including character animation, performance capture, set extensions, digital yeah. digital environments, and FX simulations. Visual effects supervisor Chaz Garrett built Jarrett. a Jarrett built a six-axis hydraulic platform for use in the flying carpet sequence, A Whole New World. The rig on which Mena Musad and Naomi Scott sat was controlled by a hand-operated input device, which moved hundreds of metallic pins up and down and from side to side against a blue screen with pre-filmed backgrounds. Aladdin's sidekick, Abu, while entirely digital, was based on a capuchin monkey, as if that wasn't obvious. Makeup and hair designer Christine Blood Blundell created the wig, beard, and mustache worn by Navid Negaban as the Sultan. The separate pieces, which were colored to match his natural color, were meshed with his real hair. The entire process took 
45 minutes daily. Thankfully, the Sultan doesn't have a whole lot of scenes, but he's got plenty of them. So let me jump in here because the biologist and me just grabbed Capuchin Monkey. Capuchin Monkeys are from South America. Well, but that would have been a problem with the original cartoon as well, because he is like a capuchin monkey, you can kind of tell. Uh, But the cast, of course, included Will Smith as a mariner slash genie, which they kind of gave it away a little bit at the beginning. We kind of knew who that was. Just go with it. Uh, And then Aladdin, of course, we mentioned Mina Masood. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. Jasmine was Naomi Scott, Jafar, Marwen Kenzari, Sultan David Negabon, and Dahlia, a character, a new character, Nassim Pedrad. But she was kind of a, she was a good comic relief. She She was a good add-in. She was a very good add-in. She could have been really bad like Jane Foster's little annoying friend in the Thor movies that you mm-hmm. but thankfully Dahlia was much better than that yeah. and it added some nice little extra stuff in there and some extra story uh, overall most of the cast I think was pretty good uh, Jafar there's people who've been critical of Jafar I actually kind of liked him as Jafar he was b- just enough sinister uh, I think that fit you know he 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 was very different from the animated, but I wanted more beard, more goatee. Maybe yeah, a little bit more beard on him goatee. to maybe maybe you know it could have been a little cheesy though with yeah. he was doing a little bit goatee pulling, but he he played it well. He was nasty. Yeah, I yeah. mean, so I, I I actually don't have any real criticisms of him. No, I don't know. Uh, I really like Naomi Scott as Jasmine. Uh, in fact, she was the only one I think really. I mean, others could carry a tune, but there's a difference between carrying a tune and being able to sing your guts out. Mm-hmm. She's a really good singer. Because uh, Mina Masood, he's okay. And Will Smith, he's a rapper. He, You know, him singing is kind of neg- negligible. Um, and Dahlia loved her. She was just great. Uh, she was so funny. Uh, she was actually probably the highlight. She was the real funny part of the movie. Because Will Smith, I'm sorry, he just wasn't very funny. He was uh, great at the heartfelt, good, serious genie moments. Yes. But when he should have come up and been fu- been funny, to me it fell flat. And the Friend Like Me sequence was dull. Um, this movie didn't really hit its stride until the Prince Ali sequence, and you could tell him with five days and you know, spending shooting and all the love and care they put into it, that that part got me all into it. The first part felt kind of rushed. Boy, did it! Like ever we're crush. we're rushing through um, Aladdin's life on the street. We're rushing through even Aladdin and Jasmine's meeting felt rushed. It got slammed right into the beginning of the movie. Um, we didn't develop any characters. They, it's like they figured, oh, well, you've seen the movie. Let's just skip the scenes from the movie, and we'll just tell, tell a couple of in-between scenes, and then we'll kind of pick up where the movie picks up, maybe at the Cave of Wonders. Yeah, but right. So you've got an entire sequence where Aladdin's first running from the guards is actually him running with Jasmine now, mm-hmm. and parts of that song don't make sense anymore. Yeah. Because he's talking. While he's riding in a cart with Jasmine, he's like, I think I'll take a stroll around the block. I'm like, no, you're not. You're driving a cart. In the original animated one, every bit, every line of that fits with what Aladdin is doing. It's talking about, you know, next time got to use an on the plume because he's posing behind a guy and then whoops, it goes wrong. He says that once again on this horse and cart makes no sense. They destroyed that entire sequence. They, you know, they they barely even got to hit them with Jasmine with her trying to oop feed some kids. and But mm-hmm. it, it came across that she's even dumber than, you know, because like, don't you know you have to pay people for this stuff, right? You yeah. know. Because it, it seems like she just doesn't think about it in the cartoon. This one, I, I don't know, she felt dumb. Like, she should know. <laughs> well, should have known. I mean, really, in the, the animated one, she should have known. The only thing I can think of is, as a princess, you don't ever have to pay for anything. Well, so see, you can the, do whatever you want. She, in the animated, yes. that seems to have been the first time she's ever gone out. In the movie, they talk about that, you know, she's done this before. 
she, I didn't she, catch that part. Yeah, that she ha- she sneaks out every once in a while because she feels very trapped. Because and I the part of with her character that I like that fit is adding into her father being a little overprotective because having her mother die and her keeping her confined a bit too much. That kind of fit with the character. Yeah. So you know, I kind of like that. Uh, the, they did. I you know. They had to, of course, push. This is. I, I, it feels like an appeasement when they do it, but it works because I've been seeing people absolutely loving the uh, speechless song, which it was a pretty good song. But mm-hmm. adding that extra element of Jafar telling her that uh, you need to be seen and not heard, and so when J- Jafar says it once again as he's made himself as Sultan, uh, it launches this song, which it's it's almost more of like the, a very very feminist statement because every bit of line she looks at some man and he bursts into dust. So every man has been eliminated now because I'm rising up to power. Mm-hmm. That has a message in it that I didn't appreciate. No. That's not inequality. That is dominance. And another here, here's the thing. I can talk about two characters and say the exact same thing. They feel like they've been pushed aside. They want to, want to become sultan. Two characters have the exact same plot points. One of them being Jasmine, the other being Jafar. So she, to me, she was equal to Jafar. The difference is he wanted to go and invade like her mother's country. He was lusting for power. She had a bit more noble because she wanted to be able to help the people. But I was sitting there going, "You're going to become queen of Agrabah. You won't. You don't think you're going to be able to help the people as queen?" Maybe it's a maybe that it's, didn't work. The only thing I think of is it might be a touch back to the cultural, you know. Uh, of the time where women would have, yeah. you don't get to speak unless you're spoken to by a man. Um, and that's just the culture of what that was. That would be my only thing that I would apply to it. And that's, that may be what they were trying but to But it would have for. been shown a lot more in extreme levels than what, because Jasmine had a lot of freedom compared to what maybe would have been at the time. Yes. She wouldn't have had even the freedom of, of what you would see. I, I think... So this being more of an animated, it's a little bit lighter. She doesn't seem to be that oppressed other than she's being very, very sheltered. Yeah. And I, then being told, that well, you know, by Jafar, and not going to be allowed to be Sultan, I would be like... You're going to become queen, and Aladdin's definitely going to be listening to her for advice because he doesn't know if he becomes Sultan, he's not got a clue. You know, that's even something that comes up in the animated person is like, oh, they want to make me Sultan. No, they want to make Prince Ali Sultan, and that's why he has that self confidence issues because, like, I, you know, other I'm going to have to get into something else on this too. But he doesn't know how to be Sultan. He didn't really want that anyway, which I'm glad they, they carried over, and they do have a nice little conversation on the. Uh, uh, the whole new world, you know, right afterward, where he's like, "Well, no, I, I totally value what you've got to say because he doesn't have a clue." Well, so of course he's going to value what she says on it because she should know more. I couldn't help but think when they had that discussion of the Sultan is because I have read Arabian Nights, which is where the story originally comes from, and it is very different than the original source. But if you read Arabian Nights, they often refer to refer to sultanesses, so as if there is a ruler that's a female ruler that is a sultaness now i don't know if that's their name for the queen or what is someone that maybe knows more of that of that may be able to explain that to me but i couldn't help but think of that well why can't you be sultan you know like because i'm reading you know i'm I'm remembering the source material and others are sultaness so what's wrong with that um so i you know the way they did it just it didn't it, completely work because I'm like, you're, really, she's gonna be in power already. It really did come off as we have to do a feminist move because of what's going on with the times in the movies yeah. right now. We have to have women power and all this, and, and I'm fine with a strong female 
Um, so you know, they define what that actually means. But but at the <laughs> same time, I don't necessarily need her to be like. I don't necessarily need her to be the the end all hero. She doesn't have to be all things. Nobody is all things. No. Um, anyway, so that that I guess that's just my little throw in. It it came off to me as like we have to throw this in because we have to win points with the yeah. other. The song it was an by appeasement, like, the the but song, it was a good song. The song by itself, and maybe if it was in a different part, or maybe like if they had an echo to it from before and then came back, like if well, she, she had has a, been, she had a previous previous song though um, about the issue. I guess I, I wish it was built up a little more than what it was in yeah. order to really feel more in place there. Now I know we have Jafar telling her, or you know, there's. Uh, saying things seeing, about being seeing, quiet yeah, and seeing seen and not, not heard. heard. If maybe we heard that echoed more in like we spent more time in the streets and we saw maybe some of that. Maybe there was more of a the environment around reinforced that that was what the culture was. And then she comes out and say it might have been more impactful. Maybe. Um, but it just kind of seemed really for me to come out of nowhere. We know that it's we heard it said, but we didn't build enough time up. Yeah. To really, I didn't think to for her to feel like no, I am so fed up with being shut down and not heard and yeah. shelved. Now I'm going to come out. I, I I think that's part of that rush stuff. They yeah. they did spend a lot of times on the big. I guess I'm going to say Bollywood because that's what it. It I'm, was very Bollywood, uh, which was fun. It, it was fun the in a lot of ways. It did work. Musical numbers those seem like they took a lot of time on those, which yeah. is cool. That's that was some of the charm of Aladdin. I got more cartoon. to say though on that song before you get too far ahead, but. The um, now you interrupted me. But I felt like all of the other dialogue were just rushing to get to the musical numbers. Yeah, but uh, here's where that scene and her, it kind of dismantles part of this. Mm. Okay, so going back to the uh, not, this is a question I've had in the animated feature, and there's actually how it should have ended. If you ever watched the how it should have ended videos on YouTube, they point this out. If the genie grants you a wish and you are a prince. You are a prince. You're not in disguise as a prince. You are a prince. And even the how it should have ended, they say, hey, the genie tells Aladdin, if I say you've got the strength of ten men, you've got the strength of ten men. Mm-hmm. So he is a prince, as how that should have been, but it was treated like a disguise. It kind of happens again in this movie. They create a country called Ababwa, and I thought it was kind of a clever way to use the Ali Ababwa. But mm-hmm. if the genie says, you are the prince of Ababwa, if he's supposed to be all-powerful, Ababwa comes into existence, and that is now a real place, and every map should have shown it. They go through the movie. It's, oh, I don't find it on a map, and the genie has to do all this stuff. Oh, like it's all big lie and a disguise. So when Jafar gets his sultan wish, the only thing that makes him sultan is the genie just says you are. Let it be done. So it's so easy for Jasmine to sing her song and then talk to Hakim, which Hakim, I like the, the fact that they included him more because that is the character that Jim Cummings played in Aladdin. But it's so easy for her to say, why are you doing what he says? You know he's not the real Sultan. So the genie's first wish, even for Jafar, is garbage. The genie has no real power in those wishes. He can't make you a prince. He can't make you a Sultan. He can say you are, and he can dress you like one and give you a big presentation, but it don't mean squat. So that still bothers me because they made it worse. Because the animated, you, know, you can kind of get away with it as a cartoon, but this time it's twice over because of the Jafar thing that went through. Well, okay. Because so Jasmine just dismantled the whole wish. Let me. Let me. So genie. Let me pose because <laughs> he does say, and I do appreciate that they put it in. 
because I think it is something that maybe, I don't know, in the cartoon we never thought about or it just kind of got glazed over. <laughs> Um, was that, you know, well, making you a prince, there's a lot of gray area in that. Yeah, because, they threw a gray area to try to excuse some of it. Well, but I think there that is a point. Like, that was can, actually just something to bring up you, the Jafar at the We can end, make anyway. you look like one, you know, uh, can't really change your, your you know, bloodline or whatever. Yeah, you still are who you are on the inside. But if you're the prince of Ababa, Ababa exists and you are now the prince of it. That should be it. If you're an all-powerful genie, that's they should be able to make that happen. That's pathetic. Okay, well, whatever. I'm... I, you, there's no way to excuse that. If you are a prince, and if he's okay, supposed to turn you okay, into a prince, okay. bang, you're a prince. So, this is why I give this movie it's worth watching once. I know some mm. people have been super excited about it, but it's been getting like a 50-50. Mm. And it's, it was entertaining. It has some good stuff. But Will Smith, I'm sorry, he if he had been funnier, he should have been able to come in big boffo at a friend like me, and it just fell flat. And one thing that even... Okay, so we know if you read the lyrics, it'll be bonafide and certified on that one particular line. Mm -hmm. Robin Williams played with it's a bonafide certified. Will Smith should have stuck with bonafide, because when he says bonafide, it becomes, oh, you're trying to be Robin Williams. Oh, you're not. And you're not as funny. Whew, crash. Burn. It was I was out. Well... I, I felt that, too. I don't know Ugh. what the direction was on that, whether they wanted him to try to capture some of Robin Williams. You can't capture you can't Robin Williams. He needed to make it his own, and he, he almost said it so much his own that it was like Will, I was watching Will Smith playing Will Smith playing the genie, which is what I was afraid of when they cast him. I got exactly what I expected of him. He well, was just being Will Smith. But, he, you know, Will Smith is likable. Yes. So, But he, I, I wanted him to be funnier, because we know he can be funny. But it, he just, I don't know if the script was just didn't have anything for him. He was Because Robin Williams improvised a lot of his funny. Will he, Smith, yes. I don't think, can improvise like that. I don't think anybody yeah, can well, improvise like Robin Williams can. Well, that, Tim Conway could. Um, <laughs> but I just, I, I think <sighs> if they had maybe given Will Smith, I don't, and I don't know. Like, this is just me surmising. If he had maybe taken it his own direction, they allowed him to make his own genie. You know, just keeping true to the character. Which I felt like they did kind of. It did feel more of Will Smith than Robin it, Williams. It just mm -hmm. wasn't funny. The, it, and we expected funny. The I actually liked the serious tone. I, I like that, um, I, you know, if you if you see some of the things like on social media that's come out with Will Smith and his advice and things like that. I like that about Will Smith of him as a person. Yeah. And so I like that part in the movie but the parts where they were trying to make him fit into robin williams shoes those were the parts for me that felt like i don't think you were very fair to will smith to try to live up to that yeah. and at least write him some jokes that he could deliver in his own way to where yes. he could have made it funny they didn't give him really any good funny dialogue Mm -mm. So it was poorly written, so I don't know if it rides fully on his shoulders. I think it's just bad writing. Not to mention you've got Guy Ritchie's a director who directs things like a music video, and the beginning of the film was a music video. The way it mm -hmm. rushed through, we didn't even get the busy, oh, Azim, the humble thief, or anything like that. The whole bits of the film, it was just sped up to catch up to where, oh, look, here's Jasmine now. And I even saw one critic saying, I'm, th I'm sorry, I thought I went to go see Aladdin, not Jasmine the movie. Well, and it did feel that way yeah, sometimes. There's, there's but I did like Jasmine in this movie. I liked mm -hmm. that they gave her some more to do. But Aladdin just couldn't carry it on his own. And Will Smith, I mean, Robin Williams carried the original one. Will Smith, unfortunately, to me, could not carry this one. Yeah. Like uh, Robin Williams carried the original. But once again, you've got like Robin Williams. Yeah. Is is, is himself so much, um, and 
Okay, this is going to be. Well, a, you're going to be repeating yourself. So this should is going to be. This, now? this is going to be a very petty. I'm going to throw one thing in. I haven't okay. mentioned this. This may be very petty, but I had a hard time believing Aladdin being a street rat because he was very clean. <laughs> very clean. His well teeth dressed. are very white. Yes. Very very oh, clean. That's not petty. That's that's a point. To me, I had a hard time being like how long again yeah. so if they had and i know they're trying to make him the oh, handsome the too. handsome hero and all that kind yeah. of stuff they still should have dirtied him up a little bit so yeah. that when he shows up as a prince like there really is a big kind of like transformation kind of thing yeah and that's on. some other problems i had okay an animated one he's stealing bread he's mm-hmm. only trying to take food yeah. and this version he's a jewel thief and whatever and then he's trying to pawn stuff for money to get food yeah so he's more of a thief in this one than he was to, and he felt more like a thief in this one compared mm-hmm. to the animated. And by also altering the scene in the animated where you have the one prince who's a real jerk and he's going to whip some kids that ran out in front of him. Mm-hmm. And Aladdin has that confrontation. By not doing that, he's not confronting a prince. He's just some random guy who he mm-hmm. kind of confronts. It doesn't make the prince who came in at that one point seem like such a jerk. He's just kind of a little bit dumb. This Norwegian wow. guy didn't deserve to get fed to Raja the way he I mean, no. he wasn't like fed to Raja, but he was just a little dumb. But I don't, he got kind of mistreated and didn't seem to deserve it like the guy in the animated one who was that jerk. Well, and so this is, this is where I think so that was another flaw. They but, tried to be more cultural, I think, with this one because it wouldn't have been the prince that talked to a peasant. That would not have culturally, like, that would not have happened. So, one of the people that, because that's what, who it was, it wasn't yeah, the prince, it, it was one prince. of their attendants, one yeah. of the guards. That said it. That would actually probably be more likely. But if you are trying to make an emulation of the cartoon, it should have had the prince actually deliver yeah. those lines. Because even though it violated the cultural... When we know, get introduced to, to that prince who's trying to come also in there. And apparently he's still staying in the palace when Aladdin shows up as Ali. So, mm-hmm. But when he shows up, he doesn't seem like such a bad guy. He's just a little dim. Yeah. So he doesn't seem to be, you know, deserved to have Raja come up and bite his underwear, I guess, which was expected, you know, like that happened in the animated one. But that also fell a little flat because he was still a likable person. And Jasmine comes off a little bit, you know, Uh, she didn't look very good in that one to me. It's like, wow, you could have been a little nicer, even though you don't want to marry the guy. You could be polite. Even if he's dumb as a box of rocks, you could be polite. Mm. So I know she didn't come off you know, very good in that one. But overall, still, it's worth a watch. But I'm not buying it. Was the Norwegian guy a, a stretch for Frozen? I don't know. Maybe they're trying to create it. You know a live action Frozen's coming. They'll they'll pull it off one of well, these days. They're try Unless to somebody it. stops this. You know what? They're actually now working on Snow White and the Seven Doors of live action. I am now sick of this. We've officially. Had, we've had lots of Snow White's li- li- live well, action. We haven't, we? And you know this is going to get rewritten because Snow White is not much of a personality in uh, in the original. But it, there's something classic and beautiful about that old classic one. Yeah. And I, I'm sorry. When I saw the announcement of, oh, yeah, here we, we here's our director for a live action Snow White. I'm like, stop. Just stop already. I've had enough. I've had enough. Well, I, I would, I've had enough of the it remakes. Would, it would be nice for some. Although I do want to see Lion King because it looks good. I, <laughs> but I'm, I'm about fed up. I've about had it after Aladdin. I've had it. I, I would, honestly, and this is just for all the entertainment industry. Can we please come up with something original? Yes, like Pixar came up with Onward. That yes. has a lot of original stuff. Go, Pixar! Come up with something original, please. Please, we, we Disney. Love, we love all the old stuff, yes. We, you know, and, and we will always love it, but trying to recapture it in 
in anything other than like we're just going to try to catch it's like trying to catch lightning in a box yeah so instead of remaking it why don't we just re-release them into theaters like they used to because even if you own it yeah. at home you'd go for the experience we've gone to theater. To, we've gone yes we saw releases. ghostbusters 30 year anniversary we just watched batman's yeah, anniversary Indiana jones we've seen Indiana yes. jones temple of doom twice no not, not temple, temple of ranger of the last start twice. in the theater yes people will go back if you re-release the old classic movies and just put them into theater mm-hmm. just for fun people will go see them you don't have to remake them just put the original in the theater we love them as they are yes people love it so okay but yeah anyway. we can go on a rant i need to i need to turn the corner and go a little bit non-disney for our next review to disney and beyond okay so i gotta go a slightly non-disney direction well more than slightly because the other big film that opened this weekend was godzilla king of the monsters and i wanted to give a review for that one as well and I have a little bit of information. So in 2014, Legendary Pictures announced that they had acquired the rights to Rodan, Mothra, and King Ghidorah from Toho to use in their Monsterverse. Now, Legendary Pictures has, of course, mainly been working and releasing through Warner Brothers. They released that 2014 Godzilla movie, which uh, we did review here years ago. You can go ahead and look that up. In the post credit scene at the end of the 2017 film Kong Skull Island, Mothra appears in a series of cave paintings depicting other monsters that are known to exist that are shown in the footage of James Conrad and Mason Weaver along with Godzilla, Rodan, and King Ghidorah. So that was the beginning of what is happening next in this film. Now I want to talk about some of the monsters you'll see in this movie, beginning of course with Rodan. As with Godzilla, writer Ken Kuronuma turned to prehistoric animals for inspiration in developing the character, though unlike the former whose species is largely left ambiguous, Rodan is explicitly stated to be a kind of pteranodon. Just as Godzilla was conceived as a symbol of an American nuclear threat, Rodan was seen as an embodiment of the same danger originating from the Soviet Union. Rodan's debut appearance was the first and only time that the character was given a chestnut color. It originally had a menacing face with a jagged toothed beak that would disappear in later incarnations as the character became more heroic. Rodan was portrayed via a combination of suitmation and wire-operated puppets for flight sequences. During suitmation sequences, Rodan was portrayed by Haruo Nakajima, who almost drowned when the wires holding the 150-pound suit above a water tank snapped. In Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, the Rodan suit was of visibly lesser quality than the previous one, having a more comical face, a thick neck, which barely concealed the shape of the performer's head within the triangular wings. The modification of the character's face was deliberate as Rodan was meant to be a slapstick character rather than the tragic villain seen in its film debut. A new suit was constructed for Invasion of Astro Monster, which more closely resembled the first having more rounded wings and a sleeker face. The sleek face was retained in Destroy All Monsters, though the wings and chest area were crudely designed. Rodan was revived in 1993's Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2, this time portrayed entirely via a wire-manipulated marionette and hand puppets, having received criticism for his emphasis on battle sequences relying heavily on beam weapons, special effects artist Koichi Kawakita sought to make the confrontation between Godzilla and Rodan as physical as possible. So now let's move on and talk a little bit about Mothra. 
Now, Mothra has some various eras, and even in Godzilla films, there are various eras, and I don't know how they get the names for these eras. I'm not much into the... Uh, it might be a, a similar director or producer. I don't know. It was all Toho, but there's been different incarnations, and they kind of reset the characters uh, every few years, generally, it seems. Uh, and we're currently in a newer version, and a more of an American version that's going on, although Japan did make another Godzilla film, which apparently was like a big deal. Uh, like Shin Gojira, I think it was. I would like to actually see that one. I hear it is very, very good. But anyway, so we have the Showa uh, era. That's from 1961 to 1968. And so Mothra. In the Showa continuity, Mothra is depicted as a mystical being that is worshipped by a primitive human culture native to Infant Island. Mothra has her hatching from an egg... This is a film called Mothra. Uh, but hatching from an egg after her priestess are abducted by a Rolissian capitalist hoping to exploit them as media celebrities. The larval Mothra swims to Tokyo and cocoons herself around the Tokyo Tower. Upon reaching her adult form, Mothra flies to Rolissa... Oh, I don't know how to say this. Rolissa's capital and causes widespread destruction until her priestesses are returned to her. In Mothra vs. Godzilla... A Mothra egg appears on the coast of Japan and is exploited as a tourist attraction. Mothra's priestesses attempt to negotiate the return of the egg to Infant Island, but are rebuffed. Godzilla attacks Japan, forcing humanity to beseech an embittered Mothra to intervene. Mothra dies fighting Godzilla, but the latter is defeated when two larvae emerge from the egg and encase Godzilla in a cocoon. In Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, it is revealed that only one of the larvae survived. The remaining larva attempts to convince Godzilla and Rodan to join forces with her in order to fight King Ghidorah, but the two monsters reject her proposal. Mothra is nearly killed attempting to fight Ghidorah alone, but is saved through the intervention of Godzilla and Rodan. The larva ultimately gains adulthood in Ibira, Horror of the Deep, where she saves a group of slaves taken from Infant Island from a terrorist base on Lechi Island, undergoing a self-destruct sequence. Another larva appears in Destroy All Monsters, living alongside other monsters in Monsterland. Along with all the other monsters, Mothra is briefly enslaved by the Killax, who force her to attack Beijing and later join Godzilla in the destruction of Tokyo. The Kilox mind control is ultimately broken, and Mothra joins the other monsters in the final battle against King Ghidorah. Now we go to the Heisei era, or Heisei. Uh, this is from 1992 to 1998. You have Godzilla vs. Mothra in 1992, and also Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla in 1994. So the 1992 film, Godzilla vs. Mothra, portrays Gothra as a guardian of the Earth who presided over an advanced civilization over 12,000 years ago. When the civilization created a device designed to control the Earth's climate, the Earth responded by creating the Black Mothra, Batra, which, which Mothra defeated, but not before the civilization was wiped out. Mothra's egg is later discovered in 1993 on Infant Island by the Maratomo Real Estate Agency, which seeks to exploit it and Mothra's priestesses for profit. The egg hatches during a fight between Godzilla and a resurrected Batra, and the larva ad later attacks Tokyo in order to save its priestesses. Mothra forms a cocoon around the National Diet Building, attains its adult form, then briefly fights Batra before joining forces with him in order to fight Godzilla. Batra dies in the attempt, and Mothra pledges to fulfill Batra's role in preventing a meteorite from devastating the Earth in 1999. In Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla... 
Mothra becomes aware of Space Godzilla's advance towards Earth and sends her priestesses to warn Earth of his arrival. Now, I figure what they mean by these priestesses, uh, from little bits of film that I've seen with Mothra, they'll usually be these twins that Mothra speaks through, these twin humans. And the uh, this new film did... It did honor that. You don't see the two twins together, but you do get the in- indication that there are these twin girls uh, played by, I, I think it's Shang Zihi. I never know how to say her name, but she was in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Uh, also, Rush Hour 2, you would have seen her, but she is in this film and did a very good job. I think she has now learned to speak English pretty fluently because uh, she's she was fully acting in English. Anyways, there is a Rebirth of Mothra trilogy from 1996 to 1998. Uh, Rebirth of Mothra is separate from the Hisi continuity and portrays Mothra as the last remaining member of a species of giant moths who guard the Elias civilization. This civilization was destroyed millions of years ago by the dragon Desgidora, whom Mothra defeated. Mothra lays an egg in modern times, but is too weak to fight Desgidora once it returns. The egg hatches, and the new Mothra, named Mothra Leo, goes to protect his mother, but sadly, Mothra is killed by Desgidora while Leo is still too weak to injure the dragon. Leo manages to kill Desgidora after maturing. And they made a few other ones uh, like that, and uh, Mothra did come back. They have the Millennium films from 2001 to 2004. I think I've seen one of the Godzilla movies uh, in, like, 2000. I think they made one, or... But I, I do remember going when there was in American theaters. But I want to move on to Ghidorah, who shows up in the Showa era, which is 1964 to 1973. Mm, excuse me. In its debut film, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, Ghidorah is portrayed as an ancient extraterrestrial entity responsible for the destruction of the Venusian civilization 5,000 years before the film's events. Its attempt to destroy Earth is thwarted by the combined efforts of Godzilla, Rodan, and Mothra. And we talked about this just a little bit before. Uh, and they have some uh, subsequent films. Generally, Ghidorah has been an alien three-headed dragon. Uh, in the Heisei area, uh, era... Uh, you have Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah from 1991, and there's the creature is re-envisioned as a trio of diminutive genetically engineered creatures called Dorats, owned by a group of humans from the 23rd century, known as the Equal Environment Earth Union, a group dedicated to equalizing the power of Earth's nations. Seeking to stop Japan's global economic dominance in their timeline by transforming the Dorats into King Ghidorah through nuclear exposure, the Earth Unionists plant the Dorats on Lagos Island during the 1954 H-bomb tests there. Prior to doing so, they removed the dinosaur that would ultimately become Godzilla from the island so that King Ghidorah would be able to attack Japan without opposition. In 1992, the Earth Unionists unleash Ghidorah onto Japan, but he is defeated by a recreated Godzilla. The wounded King Ghidorah lies dormant under the sea for two centuries before being outfitted with robotic parts by a disillusioned Earth Unionist and sent back to 1992 as Mecha King Ghidorah in order to stop Godzilla's rampage. Uh, and they've, they keep, like I said, they come up with different versions of their monsters frequently. And so now with the rights here uh, with legendary pictures, we've got Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and we get an appearance by Rodan, Ghidorah and Mothra, and probably some other monsters that may have been in some previous films that I'm not familiar with. This film did connect itself to Kong Skull Island, and you can see it in some text on some computer screens. It is mentioned, and there is definitely some old ancient artwork that depicts Godzilla fighting King Kong, so we know that is coming. But overall, this film... Now, the critics are being kind of harsh, 
but so far the audiences are really enjoying this, and I had a good time with it. Uh, the one criticism I definitely would bring is something I had with the 2014 Godzilla. I felt like it spent too much time with humans, and the monsters were fighting somewhere in the background, and we didn't really get that. When you when when you go to a Godzilla movie, you want to see monsters fighting, right? That's what you go for: giant monsters fighting. And this movie, uh, we'd get a little bit glimpses of the the, the the monsters fighting, but then we'd get back down to see what the humans were doing. Uh, and so I, you know, the, although the humans were a lot more interesting, I think than the, the than the forgettable ones that we saw really in the 2014 film. Although we do have a couple of returning characters, one of them, of course, played by Ken Watanabe. That I, uh, he's like Doctor Sirazwa. I, I I can never get these names right. But we do have him back, and that's great because Ken Watanabe is always interesting to watch. Even when he doesn't have a very big part, like in Batman Begins, when he was the other Rachel Ghoul or Razo Ghoul, whichever one you're going to go with, but it's supposed to be Rachel Ghoul. Uh, so when we see him as the Asian version, before you know, we find out later that Liam Neeson actually is the real Rachel Ghoul. So you know, he, everything he does, he's just great in, uh, really. So him being in there, uh, we we get to see a family that uh, there's Monarch, which I don't know if that was introduced in the Kong movie, but Monarch is this organization, which I think was introduced in the 2014 movie, where, of course, these Titans, as they're now calling them, they're trying to monitor the Titans and trying to figure things out. Uh, I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but somebody has uh, an interesting moment that reminds me of a freshman senator. Uh, we'll just say that. Uh, just, just as crazy as that sort of a thing. But there are themes that are continued with uh, nature trying to balance and the balance being brought about by these titans, mainly with Godzilla. He is the he is the balance of nature. And uh, when, when depicted in, in Godzilla films, sometimes he's sort of villainous, sometimes he's the hero. He's always that somewhere in between. He's always got his own agenda. And I did like a video I saw looking at the 2014 Godzilla movie that Godzilla is being depicted now as like this almost aged retired samurai who's now been called back to active service and he seems a little worn but he's got things to do uh, but he he manages to have personality and now we can actually get some more facial expressions because now he's a computer generated but still very believable and I do like the design of Godzilla in these newer films that he does resemble some of the classic film but yet maybe a bit more believable uh, but the, the funny thing about this is you could almost have a drinking game for it. Millie Bobby Brown, of course, having a role. You, you might know her from Stranger Things as playing Eleven. Uh, but you could make a drinking game on how many times she, she swears, dropping mainly S-bombs. You could be drunk within the first ten minutes of the game because she burns bacon and has a tirade of S-bombs. Which is, you know, a very human thing to do. I'm sure many people have done that before, but... Uh, as my wife has said, like she does not like to hear kids cussing it, you know. But uh, there also is the obligatory, hey, it's PG-13 if we only drop an F-bomb once. And so they do manage to hit it once, although I guess it doesn't count when you, you can flip somebody the bird. But even though we know it means an F-bomb, it's not an actual F-bomb. So you can still drop an F-bomb and flip the bird. So parents, be cautioned. <laughs> if, you're, if you're concerned about that, yes, my gosh, there was a lot of language in this. Uh, my goodness. Uh, but overall, very enjoyable. I don't want to give away any major plot points, but uh, it revolves around, of course, 
Ghidorah being an alien and not part of the Earth balance, and some humans, of course, making a bad decision to release Ghidorah onto the Earth and causing his wide, wide destruction all across the Earth. There's a few things that are a little stretch uh, of belief, like how could a young girl escape from this uh, armed facility of the uh, environmental terrorist group, which we kind of mentioned there was like a group in the Ghidorah movies that was, you know, had released Ghidorah before. That's kind of what we got going on. It was very much a salute to that. Uh, and, of course, King Ghidorah uh, establishes uh, like a kingship and wants to control the Titans. And so the, the real fight of this is these two rivals, Godzilla and King Ghidorah, on fighting who will be the master of these monsters. And one being a bit more benevolent than the other. <laughs> All right? So Godzilla, despite the destruction he can cause, is a bit more benevolent than Ghidorah. And we do have some really interesting bits with Mothra. They did a great job animating Mothra to be this uh, ethereal being. Uh, Mothra was really fantastic. It almost would bring a tear to your eye. It was, it was very beautiful to look at Mothra when they when she'd fly in. And then, of course, she gets involved in the battle uh, with Ghidorah and Rodan and helping try to help Godzilla at the end of the film. Uh, but they do give a lot to Rodan and Ghidorah and Mothra and, and bring them in as, as viable uh, threats to the, the planet. Uh, overall, though, this was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. I think everybody in the audience that I was with seemed to be having a good time and enjoying it. Because you come to a Godzilla, you want to see giant monsters in epic battles. And that's pretty much what we got. Without some of the silliness of some of the old Japanese within a suit where they, you know, the Godzilla started getting a little bit silly uh, at one point before they, they rebooted him again. He was, he was a bit more villainous. You know, he's kind of gone back and forth uh, on these different eras on whether he's kind of villainous, whether he's pure hero, or whether he's a mixture of both. And in this, he seems to be, they, they want him to be more heroic, but uh, he can't help. He does cause some destruction when he shows up. But he often is coming up trying to help the humans. And there is even a, a great moment, because uh, Ken Watanabe's character says, you know, Godzilla tends to bring forth redemptive qualities. And there is a redemptive thing. There's uh, the family that we're going to focus on in there. A, uh, their son died during the events in San Francisco of the 2014 film. And there's almost an apology from Godzilla to him. Like he kind of understands. Uh, and there's kind of this eye-to-eye look that they have. And Godzilla, the expression kind of changes like, I, I understand. And I didn't mean for your son to die. And I'm sorry, but I have a job to do. You know, that kind of thing. But I really did enjoy this film, and I do recommend you go and check it out. I mean, I know it's not a Disney film, but uh, it is it is a lot of fun, unless you just absolutely don't like Godzilla movies. Thank you for listening to the Neverland Podcast. We invite you back next week for more fun and adventure. Until then, remember to keep a pixie in your pocket. It's that young at heart, positive attitude that you can share with others. And remember to visit our website at NeverlandPodcast.com. There you can find links to our news page, our shop, our contact page, where you can easily send an email to podcast at NeverlandPodcast.com. You can also find our Neverlanders page, where you can find out how to become an official Lost Boy or Pixie, because girls are too clever to get lost. Become a real Neverlander! Please feel free to leave us a voicemail at 816-226-6492. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at NeverlandPCast. And like our Neverland Podcast fan page on Facebook. We also have a group on Facebook for you to join. We also appreciate your support to keep the Neverland Podcast up and running. 
Visit patreon.com slash neverlandpodcast to donate to Keeping the Pixie Dust Alive. Copyright content featured on the Neverland Podcast is copyright of their respective creators and used under fair use license. All original content is copyright of Blue Band Productions and a very special thanks to Yeehaw Bob Jackson at yeehawbob.com for our new ending music. God bless! Yeah! Hello everybody, this is Yeehaw Bob Jackson. Neverland Podcast, we love you. Neverland Podcast, we love you. Neverland Podcast, it's true. Neverland Podcast, we love you.